All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Infusion Church. If we could find our seats this morning, I would be grateful. I'm going to read the, the text this morning. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, and then I'll pray, and Matt will come up and, and preach. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, we're grateful to be able to gather together this morning as a community. Lord, thank you for your word that you have given to us, Lord. Lord, we come under your word this morning, and we ask that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Open our blind eyes, open our deaf ears, Lord. Help us this morning, Lord. We want to be more like Jesus, and we ask, God, that you would work on our hearts this morning. I pray that you would be with Matt as he preaches, Lord, that he would be encouraged in your word this morning, that he would preach with an anointing, with boldness and clarity this morning, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tom. Good morning, church. Uh, it's so good to see you this morning. Thank you for, for, for being here. Um, if you're new here, my name is Matt Ortiz. And if we haven't met yet, please introduce yourself to me after the service. I would, I would love to meet you. And um, again, just to bring everybody up to speed, especially if you're new, we're um, in the middle of a series called Church Life. We're talking about what it looks like to be totally committed to Jesus, to be totally committed to his church, to be totally committed to his mission together. What it looks like if the liberating good news of Jesus compels us to live in, in true community together. The kind of community that, that we need, but also the kind of community that our city needs. So we've been highlighting various aspects of community from week to week, from, week to week, from various you know, passages of Scripture. And this morning's passage of Scripture is especially encouraging for several reasons. First of all, because it's all about being a, a generous community and, and the blessing that a generous community can be. Now, here's the deal. Talking about generosity can be, can be a, a difficult topic because we sincerely don't want people to have the false, um, the come to the false conclusion that, that, that the church is just interested in their money. Thankfully, thankfully, the gospel takes a radically different angle on the topic of generosity. It's incredibly encouraging. And that's my hope for you this morning is that you would be encouraged. Secondly, this, this scripture helps us change how we view our stuff. 
I mean, so much of our anxiety and so much of our fear and so much of our discouragement is related to how we view our stuff. And the perspective that we see here is just liberating. And then third, one of the, one of the cool things that, that we see in this passage is its structure. Uh, Luke uses a, a, liter- a literary device that, that we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a structure, a structure in his writing that helps us see uh, what he's highlighting, the highlight of the passage that is the power of God, the power of God in our lives and the power of God in our church family. And we'll see that later, but I, I want to start by making sure that every single one of you connect with this passage, that you see how useful this is for your hearts and your lives right now. So I want to ask you, who is it that is mentioned as the pace setter here in this community, the one who sets the pace for grace and generosity? It's Barnabas, right? And the passage tells us what Barnabas means. And what does Barnabas mean? It means son of encouragement, right? He was a pace setter. Now, a pace setter is anyone that spurs others on, that encourages others. And a Christian pace setter is anyone who spurs others on or encourages people to love God and love others. Therefore, every single Christian here is a pace setter. Every single one of you have a relationship where you want to encourage people to love God and to love other people. And one of the ways that you can do that, one of the ways that you can bless the people around you and set the pace for generosity is by growing in generosity yourself and in a way that sets you free from the power of money and stuff. All right? So... This brings us to our first point. If you're taking notes using the outline in your bulletin, the first point is this, that God is creating a generous community, a generous community. And how does he do that? Well, Jesus changes, changes us from being owners to managers. And and where do we see that In in the early church? Look at verse 32, and it says this, that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What was it that made these early Christians so incredibly generous? Well, it was a radical, radical change in how they viewed their stuff. Instead of viewing themselves as owners of their stuff, they viewed themselves as managers. See, an owner, an owner thinks, you know, the, an owner is convinced that they earned what they have on their own. But a manager is convinced that someone else entrusted them with what they have. And so, as a result, an owner believes that he has a right to do whatever it is that he wants to do with his stuff. He owns it. But a manager believes that he has the privilege to, to use various resources that he has on behalf of the one who entrusted it to him in the first place. And as a result, these Christians in the early church, I mean, generously shared with others what God had entrusted to them. 
It's easy to think, you know, but, but I worked hard to get my stuff. No one gave it to me. I worked hard to get my job. I put in long hours. I sacrificed to make the money that I make. Now, we've looked at this before. Let me ask you something. Who gave you the ability to do what you do? Who gave you the opportunities that you have? Who gave you the strength to do what you do? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, right? I mean, every, everything we have, even every heartbeat is a gift from God. And Paul drives this point home in 1 Corinthians when he says this. He asks the rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, so question, how do you know if you are, have the heart of an owner or the heart of a manager. Um, one of my favorite quotes I've shared with you before was from Edith Schaefer. She was an author in her own right and was married uh, to Francis Schaefer. And, and uh, she talks about Christian living and somebody had asked her about, you know, is it wrong for, for them to own expensive, nice things like a, like a, 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 price, a pricey oriental uh, carpet, oriental rug. And, and she answered this way. She said, there is nothing wrong with owning an expensive oriental wrong as long as you don't get upset when a drunk vomits on it. <laughs> Based on that test, I have a heart of an owner. I know it. And all I ever had was cheap carpet in a rental. And let me tell you, worse things than vomit have happened on our carpet. All right, much worse. And instead of having the attitude that says, well, I guess Jesus wanted this to happen to his carpet and his walls and his car and his condo, I get bent out of shape. But I'm pretty sure God has not given up on me. I am a work in process manager. And God has been using the gospel and our kids and pets <laughs> To change me, and I am changing. And I'm grateful for that. God has put people in my life um, to help set the pace so that I have a new perspective on generosity, my time, my skill, my resources. Let me get uh, personal here just for a minute. I'll try not to take too long. I remember when I first started high school at a new school down in South Bay, Midway Baptist. It was almost 30 years ago. I'm, I'm old. Yeah, almost 30 years ago. Uh, I met a dude named Mike Scott and uh, played football with him. And, and, uh, and I remember my second year there, he was a senior and, and I was a, um, what do you call it? Sophomore, that's right. Like I said, it's been a long time. He was one of the kindest people you'll ever meet. And he worked hard to get um, decent grades, and he was always willing to help uh, people in need. He was always, in, always encouraging, and um, we played football together, and, and he was a beast on the football. I mean, football. He would just tear your head off in the most, in the kindest way ever, right? And um, I remember one time that uh, he broke, uh, he was a senior, he broke his collarbone. I was this skinny, at one time I used to be skinny. I was 15 years old. Again, a long time ago. And I got bumped up to take, fill in his shoes. Yeah, right. 
and I got clobbered. But he was always there encouraging me. He took the time out to encourage me and lift weights with me. If I had a problem with my car, he would fix, fix my car. And he was like that with everybody, with everybody. And um, I just found out uh, this, this week, I found out yesterday, um, uh, he's been battling cancer and he passed away just yesterday. And it's such an incredible, uh, deep loss in so many ways and such profound ways because he always was generous to the people uh, around him. And his legacy um, is that of generosity with his time and his talent and his money, with his heart, with his love. Uh, it, is, it is a painful, painful loss, but his legacy uh, lives on and he sets the pace not only in his life but also in his death as people reflect on the kind of person that, that, that he was. And you know what? He's not the only one. I've been, I have been so blessed to be part of this church, watching so many of you be so incredibly generous uh, to, to me, to each other, and to, to people who are not a part of this church, people in your neighborhood. I mean, we have so many people who refuse the heart of owners and, and adopt and embrace the heart of, of managers. I'm blown away. Every time we pass the hat for our no one stands alone offering, when we, when we collect finances for someone who is in need, and you guys, you guys dig deep, and the people that you're helping are so blessed and, and so in, in, encouraged, and, and you make them feel like they really are a part of a generous family. And it's not only those with a lot of money who, who give. I mean, there are people here who are barely making it that are setting the pace when it comes to generosity. I mean, and, and recently I found, I mean, there was this young family who sold some property that they inherited and they gave significantly out of the proceeds to specifically help their brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I'm so encouraged by that. When, when people are living this out, and then we also see this when, when people in our crowded houses take care of whoever in the group is in need. And, and my family and I have been personally blessed by that. In addition, when a crowded house hears about someone in their neighborhood not connected to our church in any way and they're in need, they pray and plan how they can bless them. I mean, our world, I mean, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. First come, first serve. Look out for number one. And in a selfish world, generosity is far more powerful than you can ever imagine. But let me help you. Try to imagine it. A while ago, I came across an article online by a guy, an author named Joe Carter. And it's, it's, uh, I'm going to read the excerpts from this article, uh, if you'll bear with me. And he lays out the story, the background, and why it matters. And the story is this. He writes, according to the Athens Review, an atheist who had threatened to sue a Texas county over the display of a nativity scene says he is completely flabbergasted that Christians from that same county provided him financial assistance for a medical problem. My wife and I had never had a Christian do anything nice for us, said Patrick Green, just the opposite. And then the article goes on to give some of the background. And the author writes, last month, Green, an activist with a long history of bringing lawsuits related to public displays of Christian imagery, threatened to sue Henderson County if county officials allowed a nativity scene to be placed on the courthouse lawn um, next Christmas. Green 
had intended to represent himself in the lawsuit, but dropped the threat when he discovered he had a detached retina and may lose his sight. There's no way for me to go up there if I'm blind, said Green, who lives in San Antonio, nearly 300 miles from Henderson County Courthouse. Green said he has no insurance to pay for an operation that might save his sight and can't even pay for the exam that will confirm the diagnosis. Why waste the money if I can't do anything about it, he told the local newspapers. When Jessica Cry, a member of Sand Springs Baptist Church in Athens, read on the internet about Green's troubles, she felt compelled to help. Cry told her pastor, Reverend Eric Graham, who contacted Green and inquired about how his church could help with the surgery. And Green told the pastor he had a more immediate need. I said, if you, really, if you really want to contribute something to help, we need groceries. I told my wife about a conversation, Green said. They're going to help us? Karen asked. Green thought if anything, he'd see $50, maybe $100. A few days later, the Christians made good on their promise and sent a check for $400. I couldn't believe it, Green said. I thought I was in the twilight zone. The money went to help pay the rent and provide necessities from the grocery store. The contributions didn't stop at $400 either. More money was coming in. Green is so amazed by the generosity of the Christians in Henderson County, he's sharing the story through the media and is thinking about writing a book. I'm going to call it The Real Christians of Henderson County, Texas, Green said. These people are, are acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. I'm dedicating the book to my wife, the young lady who started the idea, and Reverend Graham. And then the author goes on to talk about why it matters. The author says, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But far too often, we get bogged down in fighting faux cultural battles like the war on Christmas and forget that the enemies our Lord commands us to love are also our neighbors. The author continues. When we take the time to show concern and charity, as the Christians in my former home of Henderson County have done with Mr. Green, it can melt the hardest of hearts. Green went on to say, I have decided to show my appreciation to the Christian community for all their help, and I'm going to buy a star for the top of their nativity scene. <laughs> and then he says, you people can figure out how to plug it in. <laughs> That's just one example, all right? And my, my question for, for you and for me, for all of us, my question is, where are you with this kind of generosity? People have made themselves your enemies. Where are you with this kind of generosity? The people that around you, the people that God has placed in your lives. Are you a manager or are you an owner? Or are you like me, a work in process manager? How can we grow in this? Well, we're getting there, but right now know this, that God is creating a community of generosity. And he works in and through us to create that community of generosity. So where does that generosity come from? Well, it, it comes from God. And that brings us to our, our next point. Our next point says this, that God is so generous, he invites all nations to join his family. Jews and Gentiles. And he, he does it through, through us, through our, our generosity. 
And where do we see that? Two places. First, we see in verse 32 that God reaches out to the Gentiles, and it says this, that they had everything in common. Now, this phrase right there, most of the time we hear it in association with this verse out of the Bible, but that phrase right there was not like a biblical phrase. It was a, a, a common phrase in Greek political theories. For example, Plato viewed that private property was the root of all evil. He would teach that the individual lived for society and to rid society of evil, everything should be held in common. And he was asked to implement this theory in Syracuse, but when he did, it was an epic failure. He, he went on to hold on to this as ideal, but eventually settled for, for reality. So, when Luke here says that the early church had everything in common, he is saying what you Gentiles tried to do and failed is working here in Jerusalem. What your wisdom could, could not pull off, what your best efforts could not pull off, God's spirit has done. The root of all evil is not private property, but the love of private property. And only God can change a heart. So come and be a part of God's generous community. Second, we see in verse 34 that, that God reaches out, not just to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. And he says, they, they, there was not a needy person among them. This was an Old Testament promise from Deuteronomy where it says, there will be no needy person among you. Luke is saying that, that the Christian church is, in fact, the family of God that the Lord had always planned on establishing. And the temple priests thought that they were the leaders of God's family, but right here in Jerusalem, there was a community that was powerfully living out the life of the true covenant people of God. So no wonder, no wonder Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says that a large number of Jewish priests put their faith in Jesus and joined the church. Now, this is critical. Being a generous person is more than giving money. It includes giving your money. It includes giving your time, your skills, your heart, loving, genuinely loving people. And I'm telling you, I have seen so, so many of you do this in our church. You visit people who are in prison. You visit people who are in hospitals. You fix their cars and you help clean their house and you provide meals and you call just to check, see how people are doing or you babysit or help with repairs or, or help people write resumes so they can get a job and so much more. I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for that. You may not realize how encouraging it is for you to use your, your money, your time, your, your resources to, to bless others. You have no idea. And so what we need to do is we need to keep asking ourselves, keep, never stop asking ourselves, are we being generous with our time and our skills, our love? God is so generous. He invites people from all nations to join his family, and he does it through our generosity. But how does God make us a family of generosity? And that's our, our last point. The peak and the power of God's generosity is the gospel. 
Jesus says, the most famous verse in the world, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. The cross is the high point of generosity. This is not a verse about, you know, giving money or whatever. This is a verse about a heart of generosity, the ultimate generosity. And the gospel is the power that sets us free to be generous with all, in all areas of our life. It changes us from being owners to managers. It changes us from being uh, greedy and self-centered to, to being generous and other-centered and, and, and focusing on, on God and his purposes. That is why we will never ever, as a church, we will never ever move beyond the gospel. We're just not going to do it. If you're waiting for us to move beyond the gospel, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. It's not going to happen. Because we need the gospel's power not only to save, but also to change us. That is the power of God. And so we need to constantly be soaking in the gospel, peacefully resting in God's presence because of what God has done for us through the cross. So, when an enemy or a friend, or a family member, or a neighbor goes after you with complaining or slander, instead of becoming defensive and justifying it, we, we very seriously meditate on the gospel. And we ask others to help us to remind us who we are and the blessings that we do have in Christ. doesn't mean that it magically makes all the pain go away, but that is the power that we need, and it leads us to be calm, and it leads us to treat the person, whoever mistreated us, to treat them with genuine grace. Now look at the early church. Verse 33. It says this. It says, And with great power... The apostles were given the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This is the high point. There, there are three, there are three, the way this is structured, there, there are three parts to this verse. The first part is, with great power, the apostles. And the last part says, in great grace, was upon them all. So, and obviously there was great power, and obviously there was great grace because they were all sharing everything that they had, and they were, there were no needy people among them, right? But the phrase right in the middle, this is the peak of a deliberate structure used in this writing, and it says they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were telling people the gospel. The good news that Jesus triumphed over death. The good news that he is risen. The good news that he is alive and well. Now, what's interesting is um, it doesn't say that they mentioned the cross. And commentators say that they didn't need to. Because the cross is this giant elephant in the room. And everybody there knew that they had the blood of Jesus on their hands. On Palm Sunday, the people welcomed Jesus as the king who had come to save them. But just five days later, on Friday, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And at the cross, they mocked him 
He said, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you just jump on down from that cross and save yourself? And then at three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land, and they were there when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's going on there? Remember the night before the crucifixion in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying and he was in so much agony that the blood was dripping from his pores like sweat. What was it about the cross that Jesus was dreading? Uh, was it the pain? I mean, you watch Passion of the Christ, it kind of depicted the, the pain that Jesus went through. Was that what, what, what he was dreading? It was, it was not the pain. Well, was it the shame? Was he dreading the shame? Well, that was a very important part of what was going on there. But, but more than that, the worst thing for Jesus was not the pain or even the shame of the cross. The worst thing for Jesus was being forsaken by his father. Being cut off from the love of God. It was hell. So let me, let me apply this first to, to my Christian brothers and, and sisters who are here. Some of you, I know, feel forsaken. Something has robbed you of your joy. It could be a disease, a major failure, a financial crisis, a broken relationship. And the result of that loss, the result is, is fear. The result is anger. The result is depression. And we easily justify it because, because something has been ripped out of our lives. And I, I know this because I've been there. And, and here's the thing. I'm not just going to try to snap you out of it um, I, you know, from, from the pulpit here. Only God can bring you out of that. So I want, what, I, what my job is, is to point you to the solution, the only solution, that you go to the cross. And you hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I ask you every time I bring this up, why was Jesus forsaken? So that you wouldn't be. So that you would never be. God will never let you go. There's more. You ever feel like the biggest loser in Christ the history of Christianity? The biggest loser in Christian history? Especially in those times when you feel like a, like a Christian loser. We all get there at some point in our lives. Know this, that our Heavenly Father, our perfect Heavenly Father, looks at you. And your Heavenly Father says, you are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Do you believe that this morning? When you feel like the biggest Christian loser because of your faith in Christ and you're trusting him and him alone and his righteousness, it's especially important to remember, especially when you feel like the biggest Christian loser, you know that God says to you, you are my daughter, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. He says to you, I knew you and loved you before I created the universe. And I determined to make you my child. And I love you so much that I sent my son 
to live the life you should have lived and then died the death you should have died. He died for your sin, all of your sin. God says, I love you so much. I sent my spirit to pursue you. To grab your heart. To keep it for, forever. And so God says, when I look at you, I see you clothed in, in Jesus' righteousness. God says, I love you. And I know, I know that the problem that you're going through right now is, is just difficult. It is hard. It feels crushing. But this also can be an opportunity for people to see my power in your weakness and trust in Jesus and experience salvation themselves. And then God uses that difficulty, the trial to to change and transform us and, and, and it helps us realize that all the other things that we're putting our trust in to be okay, all the other things that we think we need to, to have the life that we think that we need, no matter how good those things may be, they will all eventually let us down in one way, shape, or form. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, you can hold on to that promise. It may not always feel like it, but God says, I am with you. And he promises that one day you will see all the good. One day you will eventually. Maybe not in this life, but definitely in the next. You will see all the good that came out of your suffering, just like Jesus. The worst thing that ever happened, crucifixion of God the Son on the cross, became the most beautiful, wonderful thing that ever happened. That's... That's the redemptive power of the gospel. For those of you who have not yet put your trust in Jesus, my encouragement to you is the same as my encouragement to the Christians. My encouragement to you also is to go to the cross and hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And know that he was forsaken for you. He was forsaken so that you would not be so that you don't have to experience separation from God. You don't have to experience that hell. Now, now here's, here's, here's our kind of the way we operate around here. The way we operate around here is that we take a process approach to becoming a Christian. We encourage you, to, to, if you're not a Christian, to, to hang around the community of faith and ask good questions and ask difficult questions. And, and so we take a, a process approach to becoming a Christian. But I want to tell you this morning, don't let that mislead you. There is definitely an urgency to the gospel. There will come a time when it will be too late to respond. And the problem is no one knows what that time is. I mean, not just the return of, of our king to consummate history, but you don't know when you're going to draw your last breath. So I encourage you, put your faith in Jesus today. Trust him today. Follow him today. God is creating a family of generosity God is drawing you into a generous community to be a part of that generous community. And God is so generous, he invites all to join his family. And the peak and power of God's generosity is the gospel. The peak 
and power of God's generosity is Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you <laughs> so much for being so incredibly generous to us. Your, your generosity towards us is beyond our imagination. We cannot fathom it. Father, forgive us for taking so much for granted. You've been so patient with us. And yet we trust so many other things to make our lives okay. And you tell us for our good, those things are going to let us down. Put your trust in me. So God, we pray that you would um, enable us to fix our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. That we would stop trusting things, even good things, that will eventually let us down. We attach our hearts to those things so easily. And we can never really enjoy all these other blessings and relationships in our, in our lives to the fullest until we prioritize our relationship with you. It gives us the heart we need to love people when they let us down. It gives us the, the perseverance we need when something we thought we needed gets taken away from us. Help us to look to you who is our rock, our savior, our deliverer, our sustainer. God, I pray, Lord, that your generosity towards us would make us generous um, to each other, but also um, not just generous to people in the church, but people who are not even connected to the church. God, it is my prayer that that they would hear your invitation to join the family through this generous community, through the power of your gospel. Forgive us for the times when we've been greedy. Instead of being managers, we've acted like owners. Instead of attracting people to Jesus, we've been viewed as hypocrites. God, I pray that you would forgive us. And we thank you that you have forgiven us because Jesus died for our sin. God, I pray that you'd make us a community that is even more generous so others will see the difference that Jesus makes and become part of the family. We pray these things in, in your name.